Well, Ken sends his regards. He's en route uh, to Israel uh, and um, taking the first tour uh, for the few weeks out in, uh, uh, to the Holy Land of Israel. And then he'll be back out there again in, uh, in January, too. So, anyways, they would appreciate your prayers for safe travels. And uh, everybody who's on the tour uh, would appreciate your prayers, too, that it would just be a rich, enlightening time. But um, we're getting close. I mean, we're getting close to Christmas. Can you guys feel it? It's almost there. Any, anybody go Black Friday shopping? Anybody? You, scared to raise your hand. Kind of, I was out there. Um, I hope you guys got something good for your, uh, for your family for Christmas. But, um, but just thinking of Christmas, you remember the story. You remember when Jesus was born, right? And you remember Herod the Great was looking for him. Uh, Herod the Great was looking for him to kill him because the wise men came and said, we're looking for the man who is, the one who has been born king. Well, Herod, Herod the Great was appointed king, and um, he, he looked to kill Jesus. So, so Joseph, at, at the warning of an angel, took Jesus and, and Mary, and they fled to Egypt until Herod the Great had passed away. Herod the Great died in 4 BC, um, and his son, Archelaus, took over uh, rulership of Judea in his place. And uh, this is noted in Matthew chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. We're told, But when he, that is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, that is, to Bethlehem. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so, as you can see, I've got a map up here, and um, if we turn to the next, next page here, this is a map. Okay, uh, somebody gave me a laser pointer to point at the screen, but it's in my office, so <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, but if you just imagine that I have a laser pointer on me, and I'm pointing right where it's supposed to be. Um, uh, Archelaus, uh, everything that's outlined in that bold black is the, the reign or the region that Herod the Great uh, reigned over. That was his kingdom. And when he, when he died, uh, he willed to give his inheritance, the rulership, to three of his sons. He had more than three sons, but to three of them. Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and uh, Herod Philip the Tetrarch. And so those are the three different colors, the yellow, the orange, and that uh, purplish color. So the yellow is where Herod Archelaus took control of. That's Judea, Samaria including uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And the, the orange part is uh, where Herod Antipas uh, ruled over. That, was, that includes uh, Perea off to the east and then up to the north, Galilee, uh, where Nazareth is. And then in the purple, that's where Philip the Tetrarch uh, uh, ruled. And so when Jesus, uh, or when Joseph heard that Archelaus uh, had taken over uh, uh, the rulership of Judea, he didn't want to go there. So he, he went up to the orange section which is where Antipas was uh, up in Galilee. Now, why was uh, Joseph afraid of Archelaus? Well, immediately follow, uh, following the death of his father, Herod the Great, uh, during a particular Passover, Archelaus, uh, who was over uh, Judea, sent a general and some other men to the temple. There was a group of men, a large group of men, that had gathered at the temple to, to protest uh, some of the atrocities that took place under Herod the Great. And so a general, a few other men went there to address the men, to try to reason with them, but the, the group stoned them to death. 
And so Archelaus, in response, sent in the entire army. They slaughtered 3,000 men in the temple, and he sent heralds around Jerusalem declaring Passover was over, and everybody was sent home. He canceled Passover. And so uh, Joseph was afraid of Archelaus. Archelaus was a dangerous man, like his father Herod the Great. And uh, in addition to that, the angel warned Joseph to leave the area. So that's why they didn't go back to Bethlehem. If you remember, they went to Bethlehem the census, uh, for, for the census, and they were going to go back there. I'm sure that they were there for a little while. Maybe he had set up shop there. He had planned to go back to Bethlehem. But upon hearing that news, they went up to uh, Nazareth, their hometown, where they were originally from. Now, what does Archelaus have to do at all with what I'm talking about today? Good question. I'll answer that. Um, William Barclay writes about uh, what happened when Herod the Great died. When Herod the Great died, he, is, he says here, he divided his kingdom between Herod Antipas, Philip, and Archelaus. And that division had to be ratified by the Romans. See, Herod the Great was a king, but he was like a vassal king. He served the Romans. The Romans appointed him as king over the region. And so any change in rulership had to be approved, had to be stamped by the Romans. It had to be their approved people. And so the Romans who were overlords of Palestine had to stamp this, had to ratify it before it became effective. So Archelaus, to whom Judea had been left, went to Rome to persuade Augustus Caesar to allow him to enter into his inheritance, to allow him to become king. The Jews didn't want him to become king. So they sent a delegation of 50 men to Rome to argue against Archelaus becoming king. But in fact, Augustus confirmed his inheritance, but he withheld the title of king. So Philip the Tetrarch, Tetrarch was a title for the king. They, they pronounced or he pronounced Archelaus was an ethnarch, just a ruler of a certain people group. Um, anyone in Judea on hearing the parable that we read this morning would immediately remember Archelaus and him coming into his kingdom. He, had, he left Judea to go become king, and then he, he came back. So this parable, the scripture reading today, it's a parable about a king going off to obtain his inheritance, and, and people would have remembered Herod and Archelaus. And nobody heard anything more about those 50 men in history who went to argue against him. And so this, is, um, th- this parable for us today is, is meant to, to show us a few things, a handful of things. But before we get into it, uh, I just want to think about the setting a little bit. So we're currently in chapter 19 of Luke here. We're in Jericho. It's right after Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the little man? Uh, was up in a tree, and Jesus went to go eat with him. And he was traveling, and that was in Jericho, and he was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And people were excited. I mean, it's Passover. Passover was a wonderful celebration. It was a time when people got together to remember something that God had done for them. It was almost like a Thanksgiving for us. Um, God had saved them out of slavery in, in Egypt, and he took them out of that, and he gave them an inheritance. He gave them a land. And maybe they, they, as they're approaching Passover, Jesus doing all these wonderful, miraculous things, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, they think to themselves, maybe God will do it again. Maybe he'll deliver us from these cruel Romans and from the corrupt high priesthood, 
and maybe Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God and save us from these hardships. And so Jesus uh, uh, was telling this parable in a way to combat that idea. But also, I, I think we need to note, too, that this parable, it sounds really similar to another one, the parable, the parable of the talents. Um, but it's really different. The parable of the talents emphasizes unique giftings of different servants, but this parable emphasizes not your giftings, but being industrious as a servant. You each receive the same amount, and what do you do with that thing? Now, a parable is a short fictional story. It's used to emphasize real principles, real points, real truths, and you could extrapolate other truths from particular parables, um, you know, but not everything is meant to be dissected at an atomic level or taken totally liter literally. So, for instance, you know, um, you can't say that Jesus is going to give each of us a mina. That's not how it's supposed to be taken, or that if I do a good job, I'm going to get cities. I mean, if I did a good job, I'm not sure what kind of city that I would get right now. Maybe I'm going to get Ritzville or something like that. I don't know. Is it going to be Spokane? But the parable is meant to emphasize how the servant receives something valuable, though small, in comparison with the actual kingdom. But if he's faithful and diligent, he's going to receive a massive inheritance on a more grand kingdom scale. And as with many parables of Jesus, we have to look at the context surrounding the parable, and it gives us a purpose. Um, in verse 11, we're told that this parable is Jesus' response to that idea that was circulating, that the kingdom of God would come right now. So Jesus told this parable to emphasize a handful of things, that first one being that it's going to take a long time for Jesus to come back. Secondly, the parable is meant to emphasize that you will be tempted to lax during that time. Thirdly, if you work diligently for him, you'll receive a massive reward. Fourthly, if you do not work for Jesus, you will see your reward diminished. And lastly, the enemies of Christ will be dealt with most severely at his return. It's a sobering thought. But first off, it's going to take a long time. And I think that there's two thoughts that must be in the mind of every believer. The first thought is that I must live today as if Jesus could come back right now. That Jesus could come back during this sermon. That Jesus could, could come back this afternoon or this evening. I have to live in that sort of anticipation. If I believe that Jesus could come back today then today I endeavor to live right with God. There is an immediacy to acting upon the commands of Christ if he comes back today. And that first thing, first and foremost, is that I need to be saved. I need to respond to the gospel message. Upon hearing the good news that God the Father sent his son to die on the cross, that my sins might be forgiven, that I'm required in order to be saved, to believe on Jesus Christ and the work he did there. To believe what he did on that cross is true. To accept him as Lord of my life, that's first and foremost. That's, that's an immediacy. That's something that has to happen today, if Jesus comes back today. If you haven't done this, there's no time like today to receive Christ into your life. I was working years ago, I was doing construction, 
it was 15 years ago or so, and I had this car, it kept falling apart, and uh, I kept having to put money into it, and, and I had some problem with it, and I had to let it go, and I had to let it go, and I had to let it go, and I was talking to my boss, I was complaining about my car and, and its problems, and he said, well, it isn't going to fix itself. <laughs> and it was that frank admission of the truth that nothing is going to change if it doesn't get addressed. And so your relationship with God isn't going to change. Your life isn't going to change until you come to him. Until you come to him, he's the one who fixes souls. He's the one who saves souls. But also, if you know Christ already, Jesus may come back for you today, too. And so what thing do you know that Christ is asking of you to do, that you've been putting off for some other day? What what has Christ been telling you to do that you've been putting off? Perhaps it's a broken relationship. You've been withholding forgiveness. Is today the day to forgive? Perhaps it's a missionary work or, or ministry that the Lord wants you to be involved in, and you've been putting it off, and you've been putting it off. Maybe some other day. Maybe when I'm more mature. Maybe when I'm ready some other day. Maybe today is that day. Maybe there's a pet sin in your life that you haven't given up. Maybe today's the day. You need to take old yeller out, put him down, that pet sin. The return of Christ is described as our blessed hope. I wonder if that's something that you long for. Is the return of Christ your blessed hope? Is that, is that thing that you hope for above all else as we're getting ready for Christmas, as we're making our list and we're checking it twice and we're uh, going shopping making sure we don't forget people? Is that your blessed hope or do you long to see Jesus? Do you long to see him establish righteousness on earth when you look around this world? Do you say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Now at the same time that we, we dwell on the idea that Jesus can come back today, we also are instructed by this parable that it might be a long time. This parable tells us that Jesus is not gonna come back right away. And certainly for his disciples, it was very much true. We're still longing and waiting for that day. And so are you living in such a way as to be building a cumulative impact for the kingdom of God? Are you investing in the work of Christ to see a return on your investment? As in the parable, he gave a mina to every person and expected them to be faithful and to be fruitful with it. Are you faithful? Are you fruitful? and the things that God's asking you to do. Every day building on, on the day before to see Christ magnified in this world is where the idea of the mina comes in. Now, the word mina is lost on us because you're probably like, Drew, are you really pronouncing it right? It looks like mina to me, right? But it's actually mina, and I know that because my ESV uh, reader app, when the English guy reads it, he says mina, so I know that's the way that it's supposed to be said. So does the Irish lady on the phone. She says it that way too. Now, if you try to search for ancient coins and, and find a mina, you're not going to find it because a mina is not an actual coin. A mina is like a sum of money, a unit of measure or an amount. It was worth 100 drachmas. I know, it's a lot. A drachma was a day's wage, okay? So a hundred days of work. It's three months' salary. So a mina is three months' salary. You could think of something like 15 grand, okay? So just think about that, right? 
your boss comes in and drops 15 grand on your desk and is like, I'm going on a business trip, I'm gonna be gone for a while, get to work. And just think about that, right? 15 grand could be a lot of money, you could do a lot of things with that. And perhaps uh, when your boss leaves, you start off like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, you know? Home alone? By myself? You run around the house, music cranked, ordering pizza, ice cream with whipped cream and sprinkles. That's a kid's dream. I don't, I don't really like that. But maybe you do that for a couple days, and then, and then it, eventually it sinks in. Come to a crossroads. Either my boss has really come back, coming back, and I need to take this seriously, or he's not really coming back, and the 15000 is mine. Or, I don't really want to work, but he might come back. So I'll put that 15 grand in a safe, and uh, if he comes back, at least I didn't lose it. He could just get it, collect it back. And there's the idea. There's the responses. Ten minas, ten servants, each gets the same mina. Regardless of their talent or ability, their intelligence or savvy, their attitude, their mental fortitude, they all get the same thing. Now the first servant, he got after it. He took it seriously. And he turned out a profit ten times the amount. So if he got that 15 grand, his boss came back and he's like, hey, I made you 150 grand, right? And for his faithfulness, he received something way more than 150 grand. He received 10 cities. Now cities in the days of Jesus uh, were smaller than our cities. Um, for example, Jesus did a lot of his ministry in Capernaum. Scholars think that somewhere around 1,500 people lived in that city at that time, which give you around 250 homes. In today's value, $100 million worth. 250 homes, and in times 10, 10 cities, we're talking a billion dollars worth of real estate. So he was entrusted with 15 grand, he was faithful with it, and then he received a billion dollars worth of real estate, not to mention all the commerce and trade that took place in that city that he was watching over. It's super imbalanced. The next servant earns five minas, $500 million worth or five cities, $500 million worth. The next earns, uh, the next servant with one mina, $100 million worth. But notice though, it's interesting. They didn't just get to enjoy the pleasures of these cities. They were given the task, the job to rule them. The greatest, William Barclay says, the greatest compliment we can pay a man is to give him greater and harder tasks to do. The great reward of God to the man who has satisfied the test is more trust. Second Timothy 2.12, uh, we're told by Paul, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Have you thought about that? I mean, we think about if, if I'm faithful with Jesus, then I just get to kick it on the couch for eternity, right? Uh, that's just kind of like a dad thought, maybe. But it says if we endure, if we're faithful, we'll reign with him. We'll rule with him. We'll be, we'll be doing things. 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul says, do you know that we will judge angels? We're, we're going to judge angels. Faithful believers will judge angels and their actions. Have we thought about this? Have we thought about that millennial reign of Christ when he comes 
believers, we receive our resurrection bodies and we rule and reign with him on earth for a thousand years. What, what am I going to be doing then? What are you going to be doing then? What will, you, what will you be ruling over or reigning over in that time for your faithful service of Christ? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's something to be, be sought after. Now, there's something to be said here about hard work, an attribute of godliness, even in the New Testament dynamic of grace. And I think this is part of the idea that Jesus is getting after here, is that these men were all entrusted with the same thing. Some of them worked hard, and some of them were not. The Apostle Paul talks about hard work when describing his place among the apostles of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, that is the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So there's an encouragement here, encouragement from the New Testament to, to work hard for the Lord with whatever task he gives you, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Old Testament says much the same. Proverbs 14.23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 12:11 Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. That's my teenage one right there for those who uh, play video games all day. Those who chase fantasies have no sense. See, the hard work that we participate in is commended throughout scripture. And it's something that we've been designed with. Our God worked 6 days, rested the 7th, and he made us in his image to follow suit. But that slacker child in each of us is always trying to get out of hard work. When I was a kid, my parents used to call me Houdini because as soon as there was work, I would disappear. <laughs> but Proverbs talks about the sluggard. Proverbs twenty six thirteen, a sluggard, the slacker says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. I can't go to work because it's hard. I can't go to the work because it's dangerous. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds. The stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. But it's not just the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's a, that's a household chore rule right there. You don't, work, you don't work, you don't eat, kids. Is that kind of harsh? Is it? It's from the Lord. Paul even lays down some pretty strict rules for the church helping widows. Among other restrictions on benevolence, he says of widows, 
No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Did you notice the church here in 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10 is not to help a widow unless she's known broadly for her hard work, her service in the church, in her family, and in the community, that her good deeds, her hard work is known broadly. The church is supposed to be discerning on these things, even in helping widows. This command comes from the Lord. So we see the Bible um, encourages, commends hard work in the Lord, but it condemns slackness. For me, uh, something that's helped get me out of those Houdini days, Proverbs 18.9 says, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. In contrast, have you noticed there's those people that are just blessed? It's like they work hard, they apply themselves, and it's like the floodgates of heaven just pour out on them. They have one mina, and no matter what they do, they earn ten more. You know, people who are excellent in their work are desired. I mean, I want to hire people to work on my house or on my car who get awesome reviews. I want to have somebody who's working who's a five-star worker. Uh, Or by word of mouth, people around town are talking about how great they are. That's the kind of person that I want to hire. Proverbs says, a man skilled in his work will serve before kings, Proverbs 22, 29. But there are those in our culture who want to take the fruit of the diligent and redistribute it to those with less money. You've probably heard about something like that. Um, Don't get me wrong, it's good to help those who are on hard times, who are disabled, who can't work, but a blanket redistribution of wealth merely on income or net worth net worth or the idea is not of those of the wise but of children the idea of redistribution of wealth though is biblical it's in this passage the one who had one mina it was taken from him and it was given to the one with 10. and everybody was like what that's not the way that redistribution of wealth is supposed to happen right but think of it the master's like Why would I give my treasure to a man who does nothing with it? I'll give it to the man who works hard and is productive. I'm going to give it to the man who's fruitful. And you get it. Some of you own a business. You have hard workers who come in. They put in the effort. Those are the ones you promote. Some of you have lazy workers who put in the bare minimum. They're always calling in sick for whatever reason they can. And whenever you're not looking, you just know that they're not working hard. Others of you have worked hard your whole life. You've built up an estate. You have some hardworking kids who are faithful and upright in heart. You have other kids who are lazy, wasteful, addicted to substances. Do you give all the kids the same share? Probably not. You give the inheritance to the ones who can handle it and be faithful stewards, not to those who are going to waste it away. The spiritual idea of the mina in this parable is that we've each received the same gospel, the same salvation in Jesus Christ, the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's no other gospel. There's no other salvation. 
There's no other Holy Spirit. So now that you've received the Lord Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit, you've received his salvation, what do you do with it? What's your mindset with Jesus? Do you believe he's coming back? Do you believe he'll come back in your lifetime? You should. If he came back tonight, would you be ready for him? A lot of you guys hosted Thanksgiving this past week, right? Uh, You knew people were coming over, and so you cleaned and organized your house to give the impression that you're not the dirty slob that you are. I know. I know how this works. I've heard about it out there. But you made yourself and your home ready for guests to arrive. Jesus is coming back. Is your, is your soul ready for him to arrive? Are your hands doing the work that he's asked you to do? Have you been faithful with the gospel message? Have you been faithful with your salvation? Or have you put in no effort? Now, when I discussed the responsibility to work hard, there's always pushback couched in Christianese terms. Uh, Some object that Jesus did all the work on the cross, and so now we enter the Sabbath rest of God, so we don't have to do any hard work. Well, I absolutely 100% agree with you. Jesus, the Son of God, did all the work on the cross to accomplish and secure our salvation, and once you're saved, he continues to hold you in his hands. It's his responsibility. You're his. You're born again. You're his child. You're part of his family. But once you're saved, it's also your responsibility, as Philippians says, to work out the salvation that God has so powerfully worked in you, but to do so with fear and trembling. Paul described, if you remember that passage, how he worked hard with the empowerment of the grace of God. He says, not, it wasn't me working. It was God working through me. The, toy, the, the, the term was coined years ago, sloppy agape. The idea that God does all the work and all you do is go to the beach every day and that's it. That's all you have to do. He's done everything. Now, you just love people and go to the beach. You don't have to do any work. Um, Now, this is dangerous. It increases your risk of shark attack. I don't know if you knew that. So you got to be careful. But the rebuke here is that you're expected to work. You're expected to work for the Lord. You're expected to work in your jobs to bless the world and your neighborhood that you've been placed in by providing valuable service to others, including the good news of Jesus Christ. If you benefit from any ministry from this church, you know, from Ken or children's ministry or youth ministry or the food services, know that it's because a lot of people worked hard by the grace of God. You know, they could have winged it. I could have winged it today. Maybe you thought, maybe it was better if you winged it today, Drew. But instead, I spent hours studying, praying, writing in preparation for today. I read through a half a dozen commentaries or so, each written by men who have volumes of works, who dedicated years of their lives to writing these commentaries, and it was their hard work by the grace of God that benefits us today. Another, there's another objection, though. Um, in our culture, uh, is that, you know, we work too hard. I don't have enough work-life balance. Uh, other parts of the world, they get so many more vacation days than we do. It's usually people my age complain about that kind of stuff, work-life balance. Lazy people complaining about how hard they work. 
you don't hear farmers complaining about how hard they work, right? And they work much harder than we do, unless you're a farmer and that's you, in which case, good job. Keep making us food. I appreciate it. But, you know, the Lord has designed us with a need for rest. And it goes like this. It's, you work from sunup to sundown, and then you rest and sleep, and then you do this for six days, and then you take a day off. Right? It's called the Sabbath. And um, it doesn't mean that all the work that you do is done for your employer. You know, you do work for your household, you do work for your family, you do work for your neighbors, you do work for the Lord. But, you know, God's designed us with this, this cycle. Uh, oftentimes, though, uh, there's a temptation for men, you know, men like me. Um, so my wife stays at home with the kids, and then I go to work, and I come, and I come home, and, you know, I work here. But I work hard, and you know I make lots of calls, and I, and I write emails, and I'm wandering around the facility, taking pictures of things that are messed up, to send to, you know people to fix. And you know when I get home, I'm kind of you know buzzed out, and I just want to sit on the couch, you know, and and kick up my feet and, and rest and relax. And and um, it, but my wife wants me to work at the house and like do the dishes, take out the trash, and help with the kids. But I worked all day, you know. So I deserve to, I deserve to rest. Have you, have you guys had any of those kind of conversations at home ever? No? No, it's just me? What? Man, I'm just a terrible person. I had a pastor uh, give some really good advice, a starter advice to men. When you get home, you still have a couple hours of work to do. You still have some more work to do. Your day is not done when you clock out at work. You still have work to do with your family when you get home. It's your responsibility. But you'll see when you do that what a difference it makes in your family if you're struggling with that. This, re- this work-rest routine you know, from the Lord is programmed into us. It's like the law of gravity. Uh, God placed man in the garden to work it, to be fruitful, to multiply, but to rest on that seventh day. And you can only neglect that in either direction, resting too much for too long or never taking a rest before you come crashing down like Icarus into the sea. In the Old Testament also, there were up to something like three weeks of festival observance for the Jews. Most of their festivals happened during the spring and the fall to avoid traveling in harsh winter months or during the summer harvest. And we get several weeks of vacation, plus holidays, adds up to a similar amount of time. So, you know, the Lord has given us that balance there. But even that being said, Jesus was available to men who needed care for their souls, even on the Sabbath. Even on the Sabbath, even on his days off, he was available to heal people, to pray with people, to share the good news of Christ with people. But along with this work-rest programming, there's also a marathon mindset to the Christian race. Some people get saved, they go scorched earth for Jesus, they Every relationship, they try to win to Christ overzealously, burning those relationships, swinging the sword of the Spirit with wild zeal. Their energy is commendable, but a sword is a dangerous tool to be used with discernment and carefulness. Those young in the Lord need to humble themselves before the process of discipleship, learning to grow in humility under the teaching of godly men and women in the church. It was once said of a good and godly man that, you know, he's a hard worker, but he doesn't appreciate process. 
in you know, our Wi-Fi 5G society, we find ourselves frustrated with things that take a while, crops that take a season to grow. We can be frustrated with con- concrete that needs time to cure, with ourselves when we don't understand something thoroughly, immediately. My wife and I, when we moved into the house we currently live in, I thought it would be a good idea to change the locks. Probably a good idea, right? I'd done, you know, some work changing out locks and, you know, doorknobs and handles before, and so I thought it would take me like 20 minutes if I did that. So one Sunday after church, I decided to tackle a project. I'd have it all wrapped up before my pre-dinner nap. That was my plan, 20 minutes. I went to the store, I picked up a new lock, basic deadbolt doorknob set, Um, and as I was putting it together, I took the the old lock off, and as I was putting it together, I noticed that the key cartridge was upside down. I was like, I don't want to put my key in upside down and then have to turn it. That just is ridiculous. So I've got to figure out how to turn this cartridge around so my key could be right side up, right? And so... I'm uh, dismantling it. I'm trying to get the cartridge turned. I'm watching YouTube videos, and they're telling me that I have to get multiple screwdrivers and stick it in here and get the clips and then spin it. And I spend about an hour on it, and I'm like, I, I need to go to the store and figure out what's going, what's wrong. And so I, I take it off, and I, I put the old lock back on, and I go back to the store. And um, I take it to the lady who's working in the key department, and I said, I have to flip the cartridge. I can't figure out how to do it. So she takes it over to her workbench, and she's touching it with tools, and she's like, I don't know how to do it. So she has to call her boss. So her boss comes over, and he goes, oh, yeah, you need a, a special tool to do that. You can't do it without it. I was like, what is it? He's like, it's a pickle fork. It's like, do you have a pickle fork that I can buy? Said, nope. He's got, I got one in my work box, so I can do it for you. He takes it out, pops it. Ten seconds later, it's back in and it's good to go. It's great, okay? So I, um, I go home, take the old lock back off that I had taken off already, put the new one on, put, the, you know, put it all together, put the key in, turn it, and it just keeps on spinning and spinning and spinning. So I take the new lock off and I put the old lock back on, and I go to the store again and uh, explain that uh, I broke it, and they were kind enough to take it back, and I bought a nice, uh, now I bought a nice one. I was like, maybe that one was a cheap one. So I bought a nice one, you know, that rubbed oil, bronze-looking one with a nice sturdy handle, right? And um, I, I take it home, and, and I, uh, I cut open the package, and, and I open up the package. And as I open the package, the cartridge falls out onto the floor, and all the, the springs and pins fly everywhere inside of the lock, and I'm sitting there like, is this real life right now? <laughs> My sons hear the commotion, and they come around the corner, and they start playing with everything as I'm sitting there in shock disbelief. And I, I'm no longer upset. It's like, more like Mount St. Helens at my house. And because my language has turned from English to French, my wife uh, tells the kids, Daddy's working and he needs his space, and she ush, you know, ushers them off to another part of the house. And I spend the next hour getting all the pins and springs back in the right place in the key, and then I finally I lock that cartridge in like it was supposed to, 
when it came from the store. And I take off the old lock again, and I, I put the new lock on, but it won't sit flush on the door because the hole that was drilled previously wasn't a circle, it was an oblong. And so uh, the hardware store is closed now. <laughs> and um, I cobble together whatever tools I can because I don't have the right tools to try to make that oblong a circle. And so I finished my 20-minute project by about midnight that night. So that was a real bad showing, right? Perhaps I should have given it up, and that's why you shouldn't invite me over to your house to work on anything. But I've found, as you found, that the Lord takes you through these sort of difficulties to humble you, to crush you, to teach you all the ways that you can do something wrong so that you know how to tackle it the next time. But you know, I would have not gotten that lock fixed or changed if I hadn't hadn't tried it, if I hadn't done it. And maybe the Lord is calling you to do something and you're sitting back and you're like, you can just see that it's gonna be like that lock if you try to go for it. But it's never gonna get done unless you go after it. Unless you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get to work on this thing that the Lord is asking me to do. It's not going to fix itself. It was well said by uh, F.W.H. Myers, uh, when we think about working for the Lord and how there's a cumulative effect of working for him. He says, let no man think that sudden in a minute all is accomplished and the work is done. Though with thine earliest dawn thou should begin it, scarce were it ended by thy setting sun. We get up every day and we say, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do today? And we do the things that he's put on our plate to do. And we do that every day over and over and over again. And then we see the work that God has accomplished. And you might have days like mine where you hardly got anything done that day and it was real frustrating. But string enough of those days together, you see what the Lord has done. Every year we do the church family meeting, typically in February, and I begin compiling all the work and the things that were accomplished at the church, the ministries, the mission work, projects around the building, and it's just like, oh yeah, we did that this year. Oh yeah, we did that this year. And you begin adding it all up, and it's just overwhelming how much stuff was done for Jesus. And that's done by people showing up every day saying, here I am, Lord, use me. And, and walking in the confidence that he's gonna work by the grace that he's given you, the things that he's called you to do to bless the church. So perhaps there's a task you've been putting off for a while because it's daunting. You haven't taken the steps because you're just scared. I like Pastor Chuck used to say, Where the Lord guides, he provides. If Jesus is asking you to do something, he'll be with you in it. His grace will be with you if you just follow him. Perhaps you've been doing a task for a lot of years or a while and you've grown weary doing it. But if the Lord has called you to it, take heart in the knowledge that you're doing it for him and that there's a great reward. Perhaps the master was gone for a very long time 
And the guy who had one mina and only earned one more thought to himself, man, what progress am I making? The Lord saw his faithfulness. The Lord saw his faithfulness, his hard work, and he rewarded him wonderfully. What is the Lord calling you to do? What is he asking you to do? What is the master Jesus Christ asking of you?